text of the message this morning is Exodus chapter 12, verses 29 to 36, and then some verses out of chapter 13. We'll read that together. Last week we looked at the Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread, which is also explanation concerning that is interwoven in this next section. We'll focus on what the Lord teaches us about the firstborn. Exodus 12, verse 29. At midnight the Lord struck down all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, from the firstborn of Pharaoh who sat on his throne, to the firstborn of the captive who was in the dungeon, and all the firstborn of the livestock. And Pharaoh rose up in the night, he and all his servants and all the Egyptians. There was a great cry in Egypt, for there was not a house where someone was not dead. Then he summoned Moses and Aaron by night and said, Up, go out from among my people, both you and the people of Israel, and go, serve the Lord as you have said. Take your flocks and your herds as you have said, and be gone, and bless me also. The Egyptians were urgent with the people to send them out of the land in haste, for they said, We shall all be dead. So the people took their dough before it was leavened, their kneading bowls being bound up in their cloaks on their shoulders. The people of Israel had also done as Moses told them, for they had asked the Egyptians for silver and gold jewelry and for clothing. And the Lord had given the people favor in the sight of the Egyptians, so that, so that they let them have what they asked. Thus they plundered the Egyptians. There's some description of the Exodus and the institution of the Passover, and then we get to chapter 13, should be verses 1 and 2. The Lord said to Moses, Consecrate to me all the firstborn, whatever is the first to open the womb among the people of Israel, both of man and beast, is mine. And the passage continues to describe the Feast of Unleavened Bread, and the Lord describes that consecration more in chapter 13, verse 11. When the Lord brings you into the land of the Canaanites, as he swore to you and your fathers, and shall give it to you, you shall set apart to the Lord all that first opens the womb. All the firstborn of your animals that are males shall be the Lord's. Every firstborn of a donkey you shall redeem with a lamb, or if you will not redeem it, you shall break its neck. Every firstborn of man among your sons you shall redeem. And when in time to come your son asks you, What does this mean? You shall say to him, By a strong hand the Lord brought us out of Egypt from the house of slavery. For when Pharaoh stubbornly refused to let us go, the Lord killed all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both the firstborn of man and the firstborn of animals. Therefore I sacrifice to the Lord all the males that first opened the womb, but all the firstborn of my sons I redeem. It shall be as a mark on your hand or frontlets between your eyes, for by a strong hand the Lord brought us out of Egypt. Beloved Church of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, with your Bible still open before you, you can look at Exodus 4, verses 22 to 23, where we see a key to understanding the text we have before us this morning, where the Lord told Moses to say to Pharaoh, 
Thus says the Lord, Israel is my firstborn son. And I say to you, let my son go that he may serve me. If you refuse to let him go, behold, I will kill your firstborn son. When God called his people his firstborn son, he was making use of the understanding that the firstborn sons in the family were preeminent in dignity and in power because they were the first fruits of a father's strength. And you can read, that's how, that's how Jacob describes Reuben in Genesis 49, verse 3. The firstborn sons in a family represented the name of their parents to the next generation, and they were ordinarily appointed as the leaders of the rest of the family. It was a blow to the dignity and the well-being of the entire family when the firstborn son was captured or killed by the enemy. Israel was called the firstborn son of God because as the church in the world at that time, they were the ones who were carrying the promise of the Messiah, the Son of God, until the day that he would be born as the firstborn son of Mary and Joseph. When Pharaoh enslaved God's firstborn son, the nation of Israel, and hardened his heart in hatred against God, he was not just rejecting the hope of salvation for himself, but he was also standing in the way of God's plan for his church, for us also today. Acting as a loving father, not only to his son Israel, but also toward all the generations that followed, the Lord set things right again by punishing Egypt with the tenth plague and rescuing Israel. At the same time, the Lord revealed that he did not strike down the firstborn animals and sons of Egypt just out of anger, uncontrolled anger. But even in this act of judgment, he was revealing who he is, He's revealing his name to the church. The people were commanded to think about this death of the firstborn, this deliverance from God, every time their animals gave birth to their first young or they themselves gave birth to their firstborn son. And in this way, their hearts and their minds were being made ready for the gospel of Jesus Christ. For the scriptures reveal that the Lord saw his son, Jesus Christ, in and among his people Israel at that time. And as the Lord brought Israel out of death and slavery in Egypt to their new lives in service to him, he was revealing the victory of Jesus Christ over sin and death and grave that we celebrate still today. And I preach you this gospel under the theme, The Church May Share in the Triumph of the Firstborn from the Dead. We'll see the completeness, the cost, and the consequences of his triumph. We see in our text, and we know it well from these early chapters of Exodus, that the king of Egypt had been warned repeatedly before midnight on the 14th day of the first new month for the Israelites. And then at midnight, the Lord passed through the land of Egypt. And we read in chapter 12, verse 23, the, the destroyer, either the plague itself or a destroying angel, 
entered the houses to strike down the firstborn sons and animals. Besides all the livestock, anyone in Egypt who did not have the blood of the lamb painted on their door frames was affected. The tenth plague struck without paying any attention to a person's political position, their might, their authority, their race, or their gender. From the king on his throne to the slave girl behind the handmill, and even to the captive who was in the dungeon, we read there was not a house where someone was not dead. God gave the people of Israel a great and a mighty triumph, and they did not even need to lift a finger to fight. The king of Egypt had enslaved God's firstborn son, and the Lord punished them by killing firstborn animals and sons. And in doing this, he was removing the hope of the, that generation's strength, uh, that, the strength for the future. We read that in Psalm 78, verse 51, and we sang it together. He took away the pride of Egypt by taking away their firstborn sons. And with the death of the firstborn of Egypt, the Lord also forced that proud, obstinate, and rebellious king of Egypt down to his knees before the God we worship today. The tenth plague opened his eyes, and we read, rising up in the night together with his servants and all the Egyptians, Pharaoh had to eat his former threatening words. And he called the mediators, Moses and Aaron, back into his presence in desperation. He gave them exactly what the Lord had told him that he needed to give his people. And we read that he even asked Moses and Aaron to bless him. If the people of Egypt had put their trust in the strength of their government, they could now see that no prince or ruler, no matter how great he might be, no matter how proud he was, can stand before the Lord our God. We'll sing that too in Psalm 118. The Lord does not leave the wolves who harm his sheep unpunished. It reminds us also of the warning the Lord gives to the rulers of the earth in Psalm 2. Kiss the son, lest he be angry and you perish in the way. Well, the people of Egypt recognized that the Lord had executed judgment on their gods and that there was no God like the Lord. And you can read this executing judgment on their gods in chapter 12, verse 12. The strength of Egypt had been completely destroyed. Their gods did nothing to protect their water, their crops, their health, their animals, not even their sunshine. Well, God destroyed all these pillars of the Egyptians' economy. The strength of their very own families in their homes that was represented by their firstborn son was, was struck down in one night. Their highly esteemed ruler, who some consider to be even a son of the gods, was broken and submissive before God's mediators. He was begging for a blessing from the God of the Hebrews. And fearing for our, their lives, the Egyptians then, they gave the silver and gold jewelry and clothing that the Israelites asked for according to the Lord's command. 
And they were even urgent with the people we read, sending them out of, of their land in haste. And we see in all this the providential care of the Lord who was providing his people with the materials they would need to build a tabernacle so that they could meet with the Lord when they got to the desert. God had so completely removed the strength of his firstborn son's oppressors that the people could walk out of their slavery without so much as a dog barking against them, fully equipped to worship the Lord, to live in fellowship with him in their new life. Then we see the Exodus is not a story about a benevolent earthly king showing mercy towards some slaves who were begging him for mercy. Gives no credit to the king of Egypt for their deliverance. Nor is the Exodus a story of the craftiness of of the people of, of Israel who ultimately fled the land as refugees, which would give credit to the Israelites for their deliverance. But the Exodus is an amazing story, a, a, a historical narrative describing the amazing power and the gracious work of the sovereign God who removed all the enemies and all the obstacles and he was the one carrying his people in triumph from the land. Numbers 33 verse 3 summarizes the day beautifully when it says, the people of Israel went out triumphantly in the sight of all the Egyptians. That's what it looks like when the Lord God Almighty is on your side. The complete destruction of God's enemies in Egypt gave the people of Israel renewed hope in the Lord's promise of the day that was coming when he would crush the head of the serpent in order to deliver the offspring of the woman. Already in Moses' day, the people of God could know that the triumph of the Lord would be complete. And in their victory over the slavery and oppression and suffering in Egypt, the Lord revealed that he was able to bring salvation from the dominion of the devil and of our slavery to sin. And for those who knew the name of the Lord as he is revealed in our text, it was not surprising to see the fulfillment of this same victory on the day that Jesus Christ rose from the dead. And again, we see him walking out triumphantly in his glorified body in the strength of, with the strength of all his enemies and our enemies laying vanquished in the dirt. The completeness of the Son of God's triumph over his and our enemies pictured already in our text, is a source of great comfort for the church today. You see, the grave has lost its power. The devil has no grounds to accuse his church. And the so-called pleasures of the world that we know to be just slavery, they've lost their attraction. And Christ alone is the one of standing there, the author and perfecter of life and in And all who believe in him may share in his glory. We have nothing to fear when we belong to Jesus Christ. And this becomes especially clear when we understand that God raised his son from the dead because he had offered the perfect 
sacrifice when he gave his life as the firstborn to save his adopted brothers and sisters. We'll see the cost of his triumph. When the Lord struck down the firstborn animals and the children of the Egyptians, he also passed over the homes of the Israelites who had put their trust in him and had painted the blood on their door frames. However, although God passed over the the homes of the Israelites because he is gracious, God remains holy and he could not just pass over their sins. And the blood of the sacrificed animal reminded them, as Israelites, that they too deserved to have their firstborn sons struck down. That they needed that perfect mediator whom Moses was pointing to if they ever wanted to have fellowship with God in their lives. The deliverance came at a cost. And the Lord reminded them of this by instructing the people that their firstborn, who represented their strength, would have to be consecrated, have to be given up to the Lord. This was done, we read, by the slaughtering of the firstborn animals to offer the clean ones to the Lord as sacrifices, and also by redeeming the firstborn children that were born by offering a substitute to God in their place. If the people wanted to keep their unclean donkeys, the unclean donkey firstborn for work, we read they could also redeem it by sacrificing a lamb in its place. And when the people then arrived in the land of the Canaanites, the Lord gave further instructions that we read together concerning the redemption of their firstborn. Here the Lord commands that the Levites were to be dedicated to the service of God in the place of the firstborn children of the rest of the Israelites. And then any firstborn sons exceeding the number of Levites was to be redeemed with the payment of five shekels to be paid when the child was a month old. And both the money and the animals offered to God in lieu of their sons' lives were to be given to the priests for their use. And you can read more about that in Numbers 18. The instructions concerning the consecration of the firstborn had clear connections to the message the Lord had given when he told Abraham to offer his firstborn son Isaac to the Lord to show that he feared the Lord. And we can read about that in Genesis 22. Like Abraham who handed over his firstborn son Isaac, his pride and his joy and his hope for the future, and he handed that son over into the hands of the Lord. Israel, too, would regularly confess that they could not bring about the promises of God by their own strength. Just as the Lord provided a ram for a sacrifice instead of his son Isaac, so the Lord provided the Levites and other substitute offerings to be consecrated to his service in place of their firstborn sons. And so that grateful joy that Abraham could feel to have his son returned back to him because of God's grace was also experienced by every parent of firstborn sons in Israel. And at the same time, with the joy, the people could keep seeing 
that someone would have to pay for their child's freedom. The consecration of the firstborn was a reminder that the Lord's mercy in sparing them did not belittle his holiness or take away his justice. The Israelites may have been thinking of the firstborn children of Egypt who were killed. Or later on, they might have been thinking about the Levites who would have to now live such a different life. And today, well, we think of the one to whom all these substitutes were pointing. For we think of Jesus Christ. The Lord had provided a way to save his church. Not by just ignoring our sins, but by providing atonement for our sins through the sacrifice of his only begotten son. Abraham's love for the son he almost sacrificed with his own hand gives us a sense of the immense cost to God and the depth of his love when he sent his son to die on a cross. Centuries later, a couple named Mary and Joseph, they also made their way to the temple to make purification for their sins, to also dedicate and consecrate their son to the Lord. As the angel announced, this Jesus, their son, was the son of God who had come down from heaven to fulfill the sacrifice of the firstborn, to redeem everyone who believed in him and to redeem them by his own death, consecrated by his parents to God to die on their behalf Jesus Christ suffered under the wrath of God like the cursed Egyptian firstborn children as a substitute for us who deserve the punishment. The Son of God who who humiliated himself to the point of being redeemed with the offering for the firstborn by Mary and Joseph would take the place of the animals that were offered in his stead so that he might offer himself to God on behalf of sinners. The deliverance of God's people from the slavery of sin came at the cost of the Son of God who had taken on our human nature to die in our place. And then we see the gospel through this light of the firstborn Son offering. For Christ offered himself as the firstborn Son. He he was lying down on Isaac's altar to die in his place, fulfilling the task of the Levites who had dedicated their lives to the temple service as Israel's substitute payment to God and taking the place of the five shekel offering for the firstborn sons and all those sacrificed animals that were offered to the Lord as a redemption payment. In his grace, The Lord God sent his own son to come down from heaven and to make the payment necessary for redemption. And when we baptize our children, we today can only use the water that symbolizes the cleansing from sin instead of demanding the blood of our children or another substitute because God first sent his son to make atonement for our sins by his blood. 
Let us think very carefully about the cost of the water we use for baptism, the the promises we we cling to every time we see another baptism. Think about the blood that guarantees the promises for us who believe. And then each day we can celebrate the consequences of Christ's triumph. The Lord revealed His plan already in Exodus by connecting the deliverance of His people from the slavery of Egypt to the redemption of their firstborn, so that his church might understand that we need Jesus Christ as our substitute to redeem us from slavery to sin. The gospel promise that the Lord extends to believers and their children today is that atonement has been made. We have been redeemed in Christ. All that Christ has done has been done once and for all. And whoever believes in Jesus Christ as their substitute will never have to pay the cost for their deliverance from the devil's tyranny. We don't need to die to atone for our sins. We don't need to be punished for our sins. We don't need to purchase our deliverance by offering the firstborn of our animals to the Lord Christ's triumph over sin and death through the redeeming payment that he made is our payment. His triumph is our triumph. And as a consequence of Christ's triumph, believers can begin each day in the knowledge that our sins have been atoned for. Our lives have been redeemed with Christ's life. We have been set free from slavery to sin so that it can never have dominion over us again. We have but one master, our King Jesus Christ. And just as the Lord saw His Son Jesus Christ anticipated when He looked at the people of Israel there in slavery whom He called His firstborn Son, now He sees us, His new covenant church, when He looks at His Son Jesus Christ. He sees us as his body. And as a result, we look at the triumph of our Lord Jesus Christ and we know that we can share in this triumph even though we've done nothing to earn this. We, we read that together also in the form referring to Romans 6 as baptism as a symbol of our death with him but also our being raised to new life. The blessings of Christ as the consecrated one is repeated every Sunday When we hear the words, grace to you and peace from Jesus Christ who is the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead and the ruler of kings on earth. He was the first to defeat death because he was the one who made the payment to satisfy God's justice. And now he brings many sons to glory with him. In 1 Corinthians 15, the Holy Spirit calls Christ the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. Because in Christ all shall be made alive. Christ the first fruits, we read. And then at His coming, all who belong to Jesus Christ. The gospel message makes us realize that just like the people of God who left Egypt so many years ago, we are redeemed by grace alone. And we too are now eager to express our gratitude to God by our complete trust 
in Him. We maintain the truth and the substance of the consecration laws concerning the firstborn animals and the children to the Lord. And we do this by consecrating our lives to the Lord, giving our strength, every sign that everything that might cause us to be proud, we entrust to the Lord. Our text teaches us what this consecration looks like, what that means to express our dedication and trust to the Lord, giving to Him everything that makes us feel strong and accomplished, giving it to God for use in His kingdom. We are reminded of all the instruction of the Lord to to give their first fruits of their wealth to Him for for the tabernacle, for the temple, for the, the sacrifices, for the poor and the vulnerable in the land. We are reminded of King David when he was dancing in front of the altar who who gave up his dignity as a human king to manifest the joy of a believer who serves the Lord as king. And we can see how we as Christians, we we can do the same thing by throwing off our worldly ranks and titles to reflect the real life, down to earth, love, and compassion in the family of God that's so central to what kingdom life is like. We could think of the commands of Christ and the apostles to dedicate our time, our careers, to the furtherance of the kingdom of God. We could think of the Lord's commands to consecrate our families to the worship of the Lord. And when our children who are just as inquisitive as the children in Moses' days, when our children ask, what does all this mean? Why are you giving your strength to the Lord? Well, we could say to them the same thing that was said so many centuries before. The same Lord who delivered Israel from Egypt with a strong hand and struck down their firstborn, later sent his own son, Jesus Christ, to be struck down in the place of the redemption sacrifices that were offered by the people of Israel. And like the Israelites, we too can conclude our instruction saying, therefore, therefore, filled with joy and thanksgiving to the Lord for his deliverance, I consecrate my life to the Lord, the triumph of Jesus Christ that I may share in will be as a mark on my hand or frontlet between my eyes so that I never forget them. And even though we may not take this as literally as the Orthodox Jews who had these words written down and attached to their hands and to their head ornaments, the frontlets, we do well to keep these words very close to our hearts. Every time we look at one another, every time we look at our children, every time we look at all the Lord has given, they're as close to our hearts as our confession in Lord's Day 1. I am not my own, but belong with body and soul, in life and in death, to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. He has fully paid for all my sins, with his precious blood, and has set me free from all the power 
of the devil. Therefore, by his Holy Spirit, he also assures me of eternal life and makes me heartily willing and ready from now on to live for him. Rejoice, brothers and sisters, for we share in Christ's triumph, not only over sin, but also over death and over the grave. Alleluia, alleluia, amen.